the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. We're glad to have you with us. I'm looking forward to introducing uh, Julie Slattery. She's a Ph.D., a clinical psychologist, author, speaker, president and co-founder of Authentic Intimacy. She's also the host of Java with Julie. It's a blog. Uh, she's the author of Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design and Why It Matters. It is an excellent book that holds the, uh, the church to account for uh, providing teaching in this subject that's so desperately needed, not only within the church, but the culture as well. Dr. Slattery will join us in the five o'clock hour, and I'm looking forward to that. Also in this uh, second hour, we're going to give away a family four pack of tickets to Gospel Sing Live. That's coming up to... um, I should say on the 16th of August, we would love to give those four tickets away to you and you can give them to uh, folks you care about, family, friends, whomever. Uh, But we'll be doing that all this week. So listen up for opportunities to win a family four pack of tickets to the Gospel Sing Salem um, Waterfront on the 16th of August. Both uh, Clark and I will be there. So look forward to seeing many of you. First, a look at some of the headlines. Four people, including a gunman, were killed, 15 injured in a shooting at Food Festival, the Garlic Food Festival. At least one gunman opened fire on Sunday in Northern California's Gilroy Garlic Festival, killing a three and injuring 15 before being fatally shot by police. Authorities are searching for a possible second suspect. The gunman, whose name has not been released, was killed by police who were stationed nearby. And by the way, I think it has since been released. But the police were stationed nearby and responded in less than a minute after the initial shot was fired. A police official said the shooting rampage began at 541 p.m. local time on the north side of the festival. The chief of police Uh, Scott Smithy said at a press conference late Sunday, Smithy said the uh, gunman gained access to the festival by cutting through a fence with a weapon and said some witnesses reported a second suspect, but police could not immediately confirm those reports. Still, the search is ongoing for the possible second suspect. House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings was the subject of President Trump's wrath this weekend as the president called the veteran congressman a bully and a racist and attacked his leadership of the district in Baltimore. On Saturday, the president called Cummings a brutal bully over Twitter for how he spoke to Border Patrol officials. Trump said the congressman Baltimore district was uh, in far worse shape than the situation on the southern border. Uh, That rebuke resulted in claims of racism from Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Trump hit back, citing claims of racism against Pelosi from some progressive Democrats, reference to Pelosi's problems with the squad um, that were supposedly uh, resolved in a meeting with one member earlier today. By the way, the this administration has given 16 billion dollars to that um, uh, community in Baltimore, more uh, community development money, more homeless funds 
than the previous administration in all three of those cases. I'm not sure racism is the right uh, word to apply to this exchange, but nonetheless, we'll leave it at that for the moment. Dan Coats will be stepping down as director of national intelligence next month, and President Trump has nominated Texas GOP Representative John Ratcliffe, a strong White House ally to replace him. Uh, Coates will be leaving his office on the 15th of next month. His departure follows months of speculation and public spats between the president and the intelligence community. Uh, Coates frequently appeared out of step with the, the uh, president during his two-year tenure, and their frayed relationship reflected broader divisions between the president and the government's intelligence community or agencies. Ratcliffe has been well-versed in the intelligence community after driving key sections of ongoing Republican-led probes into apparent federal Uh, rather Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act abuses by the FBI and the Justice Department. Uh, He was one of the key Republican lawmakers who grilled former special counsel Robert Mueller during his hearings last week. His nomination prompted immediate outrage from many top Democrats who accused the president of seeking to appoint a blindly loyal yes man to the key post. And officers were swarming a community in the Canadian province of Manitoba on Sunday after a possible sighting of the two teens suspected at... uh, Least, uh, of at least three slayings, including the killing of an American woman and her Australian boyfriend, according to local police. Authorities told residents in the area to stay inside to make sure their doors were locked at home. Chief Leroy Constant with New York, uh, with the York Factory First Nation said uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police would be conducting a search of uh, Cam McLeod and Briar Schmelsky in a, their community of York Landing after a possible sighting around a landfill on Sunday night. And Marianne Williamson, a 2020 Democratic hopeful, said she hopes to be taken more seriously as a candidate on this week's debate stage after her first debate left her on the receiving end of online jokes and memes. Williamson had vowed to beat President Trump with a politics of love. In an interview published on Sunday, the best-selling author and Oprah Winfrey spiritual advisor said she was satisfied with the substance of her message, but admitted my delivery made me vulnerable to mockery. Still, Williamson said she plans to just be herself during Tuesday's debate in Detroit. The Senate Intelligence Committee confirmed on Friday that Russian hackers targeted election systems in all 50 states in advance of the 2016 elections, but did not attempt to alter any vote totals. And while it was previously known that hackers targeted a handful of states in the run-up to the election, the report revealed that the effort was more widespread than previously understood. We might have understood it more uh, rather sooner if the focus had been on Russian interference in the election. Senator Kamala Harris, who has spent some time clarifying her stance on Medicare for all, is now proposing her own version of a single payer insurance plan. Harris has proposed to double the transition period from the current health care system to the single payer system to reduce Bernie Sanders proposed tax on middle class families to pay for the plan. And she would allow private insurance companies to offer Medicare options. Three people were killed and at least 15 others uh, injured on Sunday after a shooting that sent panicked people running at an annual food festival. And again, an assailant is uh, thought to still be at large, that investigation continuing. And a federal judge in Kentucky dismissed a defamation lawsuit filed against the Washington Post by a Covington Catholic high school student. Nicholas Sandman and his family sought $250 million in damages over the newspaper's reporting about a confrontation between Sandman and a Native American man in January. And on uh, April 11th, the Illinois State Senate voted 53 to 0 in favor of Senate Bill 556, otherwise known as the Equitable Restrooms Act, 
which would have all single occupancy restrooms and places of public accommodation to be labeled as gender neutral. On the 21st of May, the state house passed a bill on a 109 to 5 vote. And on Friday, Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the legislation into law. And Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo is facing criticism after she her administration awarded a non-bid billion-dollar contract to a gaming company that's represented by the treasurer of the Democratic Governors Association, which Raimondo chairs. And on this day in history, in 1914, transcontinental telephone service in the U.S. becomes operational with the first test conversation between New York and and San Francisco. And on this day in 1921, Adolf Hitler becomes the leader, the Führer, if you will, of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. On this day in 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signs the National Aeronautics and Space Act, creating NASA. And on this day in 1981, Britain's Prince Charles marries Lady Diana Spencer in a ceremony at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It was all the rage that day. The couple would divorce in 1996. On this day in 2004, Senator John Kerry accepts the Democratic presidential nomination at the party's convention in Boston with a military salute and the declaration, I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. And finally, on this day in history, 2009, Microsoft and Yahoo announce a 10-year Internet search partnership under which Bing would replace Yahoo Search as the companies agree to take on the overwhelming dominance of Google in the online advertising market. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a heads up, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Julie Slattery. She's a clinical psychologist and author of Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design, and Why It Matters. She's also the Uh, co-founder of Authentic Intimacy. She'll be joining us in our second hour. President Trump on Sunday announced that Texas GOP Representative John Ratcliffe, a staunch White House ally, is going to replace Dan Coats as Director of National Intelligence. Following months of speculation, the move prompted immediate outrage. A source close to the matter says that um, Coates never saw his 2017 appointment as a long-term proposition. Radcliffe has been well-versed in the intelligence community after driving key sections of the ongoing Republican-led probes into apparent federal or rather foreign intelligence surveillance act abuses. Coates submitted his letter of resignation to the president on Sunday. Part of it read, the intelligence community is stronger than ever and increasingly well-prepared to meet new challenges and opportunities. As we have previously discussed, I believe it is time for me to move on to the next chapter of my life, end quote. Um, I am pleased to announce that highly respected Congressman John Ratcliffe of Texas will be nominated by me to uh, be the director of national intelligence, the president tweeted in response. A former U.S. attorney, John will lead and inspire greatness for the country he loves. Trump added Dan Coats, the current director, will be leaving office on the 15th of August. I would like to thank Dan for his great service to our country. The acting director will be named shortly. Well, uh, Dan Coates frequently appeared out of step with the president during his two-year tenure, and their frayed relationship reflected broader divisions in the intelligence community. For instance, Coates revealed uh, to then-special counsel Robert Mueller's investigators how Trump, angry over investigations into links between his campaign and Russia, tried unsuccessfully to get him to make a public statement refuting any connection. Coates responded that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence had nothing to do with investigations, and it is not his role to make public statements on the Russian investigation. 
Mueller's report said. And last year at the Aspen Security Forum, Coates did a double take when uh, host Andrea Mitchell broke the news on stage that Vladimir Putin was planning a trip to Washington. Say that again, he asked to laughter in the audience. Okay, that's going to be special, he said at the time. Coates later said he meant no disrespect to the president and admitted the moment was awkward. Some press coverage has mischaracterized my intentions in responding to breaking news presented to me during a live interview. My admittedly awkward response was in no way meant to be disrespectful or to criticize the actions of the president, Coates said. But it was awkward to learn the information before a live audience. In a statement, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer condemned Radcliffe's selection and pointed to the congressman's performance during last week's hearings with Mueller. During his questioning, Radcliffe told Mueller that he had acted improperly and trampled on the presumption of innocence by saying in his report that Trump had not been exonerated. It is clear Mr. Radcliffe was selected because he exhibited blind loyalty to the president. Well, the point he was making during that hearing is that it's not the role of the special prosecutor to extend exoneration. So to suggest that he didn't do so and the implication that he might have otherwise was improper. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, meanwhile, responded, I was very sorry to learn today that Director Coates will depart his position as director of the National Intelligence later this month. My friend and former colleague has devoted decades of his life in service to our country. I was assured, knowing that a man who took such a deliberate, thoughtful, and unbiased approach was at the helm of our intelligence community. The departure of DNI Coates is bad news for our security, or rather for the security of America, House Speaker Pelosi said, saying that DNI Coates' successor must put patriotism before politics. Senate Intelligence Committee Vice Chairman Mark Warner praised Coates' tenure for, for uh, uh, staying true to the intelligence community's mission. CNN's national security analyst, Sean Turner, Representative Adam Schiff, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas also each separately praised Coates specifically for speaking truth to power on social media. Reaction from Republican lawmakers to Radcliffe's selection appeared positive across the board. House Homeland Security Committee ranking member Mike Rogers called Radcliffe an excellent pick to be the director for national intelligence. His experience on the Homeland Security Committee and as former Cybersecurity Infrastructure Protection and Innovation Subcommittee chair will serve him well in this new role. Rogers said, I thank Director Coates for his leadership and years of public service. And House Oversight Committee ranking member Jim Jordan said Radcliffe was a great pick. Speculation about Coates' ouster had been lingering in recent days. Sources uh, earlier this month said that Trump spoke to two people recently about the job. Among the candidates he was considering at the time were General Joseph Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Fred Flights, who uh, previously served as uh, chief of uh, staff to National Security Advisor John Bolton. In unusually forceful, rather angry and personal terms, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Monday countered what he called baseless smears from left wing media and vowed not to be intimidated in the wake of a Washington Post op ed that declared McConnell a Russian asset. It's a serious charge. That op-ed was written by columnist Dana Milbank, whom McConnell suggested bluntly was one of several hyperventilating hacks who conveniently had ignored former President Obama's feckless Russian policies. Milbank had argued that McConnell's opposition to several election security bills proposed by Democrats effectively made him an unwitting Russian agent and other pundits quickly echoed Milbank's arguments on MSNBC's Morning Joe on Friday. The host repeatedly called McConnell Moscow Mitch, saying he was aiding and abetting Russian President Vladimir Putin's efforts to subvert American elections and even alleging a Russian linked uh, investment in Kentucky could be playing a part. Uh, Facts matter, McConnell said sternly in response. 
I don't normally take the time to respond to critics in the media when they have no clue what they're talking about. But this morning day, McCarthyism is toxic and damaging because of the way it warps our entire public discourse. Details matter. History matters. And if our nation is losing our ability to debate public policy without screaming about treason, that really matters. In the middle of the 20th century, the original McCarthyism hurt America's strength and diminished our standing in the Cold War by dividing us against ourselves. In response, Fred Hyatt, editorial page editor of The Washington Post, told Fox News' Dana Milbank column was a legitimate exercise in commentary, making the argument that Senator McConnell's blocking of election security legislation will harm the United States and work to Russia's advantage. Of course, it's equally uh, legitimate for Mr. McConnell to express a contrary view, but the Milbank argument has nothing to do with McCarthyism. McConnell, however, said the outrage uh, uh, industrial complex has ignored his legitimate and principled objections to the Democrats' proposed election security bill. For example, McConnell noted that the New York Times editorial board this weekend wrote that he has long opposed federal involvement in election management and as far back as 2002 repeatedly spoke out against a one-size-fits-all approach in favor of leaving election matters up to the states. One of the Democrats' uh, proposals would have mandated the use of paper ballots federally and included funding for the Federal Election Assistance Commission. It passed the House 225 to 184 with only one Republican vote. And McConnell killed uh, uh, the Democrats' efforts to pass it in the Senate via unanimous consent, knowing it had no chance of actually passing in what he himself described as a partisan move. Republicans have said Democrats unnecessarily were seeking election security funding that was already allocated for that purpose. Well, the back and forth continues in Washington. Well, the House Oversight Committee voted along party lines on Thursday to authorize subpoenas for personal emails and texts used for official business by top White House aides, including uh, Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner. Representative Elijah Cummings, the panel's chairman, said the committee has obtained direct evidence that the president's daughter, Kushner, and other top aides were using personal accounts for official business in violation of federal law and White House policy. What we do not yet know is why these White House officials were attempting to conceal these communications, he said, adding that the White House has refused to produce a single piece of paper this year in response to the investigation. Cummings said Ivanka Trump has used private email accounts for official business while her husband has used the messaging application WhatsApp. Former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon also used private accounts for personal business, Cummings said. Well, Republicans called the subpoenas unnecessary and said Ivanka Trump and Kushner are cooperating with the committee. The subpoenas were approved 23 to 16 on party line vote. Cummings also announced on Thursday that the House Oversight Committee would postpone a vote on whether to recommend that White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway be held in contempt of Congress as talks continued with the Trump administration. The committee's investigation comes after Ivanka Trump last year dismissed any comparison of the use of private email by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, which prompted an FBI investigation and inspired the lock her up chant at Donald Trump's 2016 campaign rallies. In her time as the top U.S. diplomat from 2009 to 2013, Clinton sent thousands of emails using a private server set up at her home in Chappaqua, New York. The FBI found classified information in some of those emails that were sent or received on the non-government system. The federal authorities declined to pursue charges against her. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court, in an order late Friday, allowed the president to 
reprogrammed $2.5 billion in Pentagon funds to start construction of 100 miles of border wall. Chief Justice John Roberts and four other conservative justices, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas, voted with the government in full. Liberal justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elena Kagan and Sonia, uh, Sonia Sotomayor uh, indicated their full dissent with a fourth, Stephen Breyer, proposed uh, a, a compromise in a partial dissent. The government has made a sufficient showing at this stage that the plaintiffs have no cause of action to obtain review, the court's order read. Well, the Trump uh, administration declared a national emergency at the southern border on 15th of February, months ago, after Congress refused to appropriate sufficient funds for border barriers. Pursuant to that proclamation, administration officials announced plans to reprogram some $600 million from the Treasury Department's forfeiture fund, $2.5 billion from the Defense Department counter-narcotics activities, and $3.6 billion from military construction projects to finance construction of the wall. The $2.5 billion for anti-drug efforts were an issue uh, in Friday's case. That sum was slated to finance fencing in Arizona, California, and New Mexico. Government lawyers said those projects are priorities for the, de- the Department of Homeland Security as they're meant to deter narcotic trafficking and major drug smuggling of that corridor. The administration moved the funds pursuant to a transfer statute that allows such relocations to address unforeseen needs, provided they have not been denied by the Congress. Well, a coalition of environmentalists led by the Sierra Club sued the administration to stop the reassignment. The plaintiffs in Trump versus Sierra Club said they have re- recreational and aesthetic interests in uh, habitats near the border like hiking, bird watching, and photography. The American Civil Liberties Union represented the plaintiffs. In court papers, the Trump administration said the green groups didn't have standing to bring a lawsuit arguing the transfer statute does not protect their recreational and aesthetic interests. Well, the U.S. District Judge uh, Hayward Gilliam sided with the plaintiffs in June and barred the government from reprogramming the contested funds. A three-judge panel of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed on a two-to-one vote in, Jan- in uh, July, rather, noting Congress furnished just $1.37 billion for border barriers instead of the 5.7 the president requested. By the court's reading, that meant the wall project, uh, projects rather, funded by the $2.5 billion had been denied by Congress. As for public interest, we conclude that it is best served by respecting the Constitution's assignment of the power of the purse to Congress. Well, the Department of Justice takes a narrow view of the transfer statute. The bar on reprogramming funds for items denied by Congress refers to specific requests made during the appropriations process and not a border wall writ large, the government argued. Well, the Trump administration then filed an emergency stay application at the Supreme Court, asking the justices to put the Ninth Circuit's ruling on hold while litigation continued. Government lawyers asked the Supreme Court to resolve the matter by Friday due to budget constraints. By their telling, the funds at issue will not be available for allocation after the fiscal year ends September 30th, and the Department of Defense needs several months to finalize contracts. Well, the high court's order granting the application indicates that a majority of the court agrees with the government that the environmentalists do not have standing to challenge the transfer. Breyer sought a compromise, suggesting that the government could finalize its contracts without beginning construction on any particular project. I would grant the government's application to stay the injunction only to the extent that the injunction prevents the government from finalizing the contract or taking other preparatory administrative action, but leave it in place insofar as it precludes the government from disbursing those funds or beginning construction, he wrote. Well, the case now will begin 
uh, will return rather to a lower court for further proceedings. The ACLU says that it would ask the Ninth Circuit to process the case quickly, thereby blunting whatever progress the administration might make on construction in the interim. This is not over, the ACLU staff attorney uh, said on Friday, and of the decision, we will be asking the federal appeals court to expedite the ongoing appeal proceeding to halt the irreversible and imminent damage from Trump's border wall. Border communities, the environment, and our Constitution's separation of powers will be permanently harmed should Trump get away with pillaging military funds for a xenophobic border uh, wall Congress denied. Well, House Democrats brought their own lawsuit against the administration after he announced plans to finance the wall with reprogrammed funds. U.S. District Judge Trevor McFadden dismissed that case in June, calling it a political fight between two political branches that the courts should not resolve. So while there was a victory in the Supreme Court, the issue is by no means ultimately resolved. And three congressional Democrats proposed a gradually increased carbon tax Thursday that they claim would meet their ambitious goal of cutting carbon emissions by 100 percent by 2050. The lawmakers, Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, Diane Feinstein of California and Representative Jimmy Panetta of California, argued the Climate Action Rebate Act would combat climate change while encouraging market driven innovation in clean energy technologies. Americans want more options to purchase clean, affordable energy, Feinstein said in a press release. By placing a price on carbon, our bills and a bill rather encourages energy companies to take climate change seriously and reduce harmful greenhouse gas emissions. It also provides families with a monthly dividend to offset price increases as we transition to cleaner alternatives. She added this is a common sense approach to cut carbon emissions by 100 percent. And in 30 years and 31, technically, and I'm proud to join Senator Coons and uh, Representative Panetta to introduce it. The bill would rebate a majority, 70 percent of revenues from the tax to low and middle income Americans as a monthly dividend while spending the rest on infrastructure, energy innovation and helping communities transition to a cleaner energy economy. By 2030, the senators claim the bill would reduce carbon emissions by 55 percent from 2017 levels, saying we have high confidence projections of extreme temperatures, rising sea levels and increased frequency and intensity of storms and droughts. An information sheet for the bill claims failure to act now will result in more severe costs to our environment, economy and security in the future. And these are based on uh, computer models that have been updated and revised over the decades. Um, uh, Representative, uh, I won't even mention that. According to an analysis, uh, it's uh, practically impossible to use a carbon tax uh, in order to uh, reach the goal of net zero emissions by 2050. That's one um, major question about the legislation. The analysis indicated that the substantial increases in the carbon tax would be economically costly, would prove marginally less effective over time in reducing emissions. Lois and Kevin um, Dearnata, a senior statistician, a uh, couple at uh, Heritage attempted to use the Energy Information Administration's natural, or rather national uh, energy model to forecast the impact of steep carbon taxes aimed at reaching the net zero greenhouse gas emissions goal using their own model. Not only did the model crash, the conservative organization said it failed to approach anywhere near the goal outlined in the Green New Deal. The closest Heritage was able to get to uh, was a 50 percent reduction in emissions achieved through a $300 carbon tax, taxes above $300 uh, crashed the um, the model. Just a 58% reduction would, by 2040, cost 
of the economy, $15 trillion in lost gross domestic product and an average of 1.1 million uh, jobs per year, the analysis found. It also found that the average family of four would also see a total income loss of $165,000 or nearly $8,000 each year. Household energy expenses would also see an average increase of 30 percent, according to the think tank, again, using the model that is touted by the legislation. And the U.S. economy is in the throes of the longest expansion on record, but not everyone is optimistic it's going to continue too much longer. According to experts surveyed by online real estate site Zillow, half of real estate experts and economists expect a recession would occur in 2020. The highest proportion of respondents thought the slowdown will likely hit in the third quarter of 2020. Respondents thought trade policy was most likely to end the economic expansion followed by a geopolitical crisis or a stock market correction. Now, if the uh, tariffs were and the trade policy was to be resolved by that time, then the prediction would also be altered. Not too many people thought weakness in the housing market would trigger the next recession, but they did expect demand in the housing market would be negatively affected. More than half of experts surveyed thought home buying demand in 2020 would be somewhat or significantly lower than this year. On Thursday, Freddie Mac reported that mortgages rates uh, hit a nearly three-year low as the 30-year fixed rate dropped to 3.75%. However, despite low rates and a strong U.S. economy, buyers have been relatively reluctant to get in the housing market. U.S. home sales picked up slightly in June, according to the data from the Commerce Department, to a seasonally adjusted rate of 646000 you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return after this break, we're going to give away our family four-pack of Gospel Sing Live tickets come, coming to the Salem Waterfront and Riverfront Park on August the 16th. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As promised, we want to give away our family four-pack of tickets to Gospel Sing Live Friday, August 16th, 7 o'clock p.m. at Riverfront Park in Salem. You can come hear some of your favorite Southern Gospel artists that include the Booth Brothers, Tribute Quartet, Wes Hampton of the Gaither Vocal Band. You can enjoy listening on the lawn with your blanket and chair. You can choose reserved seating with chairs provided however you want to do it. You are invited to join us. Bring your family and friends, your church group. Uh, to get your tickets, you can uh, call 503-652-8158. You can go to kpdq.com. But we want to give away a family four-pack of tickets uh, to one of you right now. We're going to give that to caller number four and the number to call, 1-800-845. I don't know why I say one, because you don't really need that anymore. 800-845-2162. That's 800-845-2162. We'd love to give that family four-pack of tickets to caller number Four, And uh, we'll be giving those away for the remainder of this week. Um, and I should mention that you need to, to be able to come to the station to pick those tickets up. Again, 800-845-2162, caller number four. Well, to constrain the growth of central government, conservatives have fought to keep down the number of federal bureaucrats. That strategy has failed thus far. Since the 1960s, the number of federal employees has remained constant at about 2 million 
federal power has greatly expanded as well. Well, this phenomenon arises because Washington has outsourced many of the civil service functions to contractors, nonprofit groups, and lower levels of government. According to New York University professor Paul Light, the true size of the federal government's blended workforce, as they refer to it, is now somewhere between 7 to 9 million people. Now, the biggest portion of the blended federal workforce consists of federal contractors. Today, there are about 3.7 million federal contractors, almost twice as many as there were in the 1960s. Now, these contractors, they fill a wide range of functions. They are security and war zones. Statistical analysis is done by them, janitorial services, management consulting, almost everything in between. And many of these functions were once performed by the largely blue-collar federal workforce of the mid-20th century. Well, in addition to government contractors, a large portion of the nonprofit sector exists to execute federal policy. In fact, federal grant money is the primary source of income for about 1.6 nonprofit workers. Well, these salaries are underwritten by the $235 billion the federal government lays out to nonprofits every year. Now, this money funds everything from Head Start and foster care to health clinics and financial literacy programs. State and local governments also increasingly work at the behest of the federal government. The amount of inflation-adjusted federal funding handed to state and local governments has increased tenfold since the 1960s a wellspring of cash that's allowed state and local governments to triple their labor uh, labor forces. And while conservatives focus on the long-term goal of rolling back regulations and reining in federal spending, they also have to grapple with the dangers of handing over the public's business to nonprofits and private companies. Now, that seems like something of a contradiction in that you hear a lot of uh, of conservatives suggest that there are functions that the private sector could do rather than the federal government. But here you have... Uh, nonprofits and private uh, companies being paid uh, to do their work by the federal government and become an extension of the federal government. So it's really there is a distinction with a real difference. And while private citizens can demand unclassified um, documents from federal agencies, they cannot make such uh, requests of um, uh, Deloitte and Raytheon. Their operations are far less transparent, even if their processes are much more efficient. It's not even clear which companies are receiving federal dollars. According to a 2014 report by the Government Accountability Office, only 2 to 7 percent of grant and contract awards on the website contained information that was fully consistent with agency records. So they're less accountable. Uh, Apparently, federal reliance on state and local government is no less problematic. State governments have become increasingly reliant on grant money from the federal government, which gives Washington tremendous leverage in what goes on in the states. Uh, It's a troubling perversion of federalism. It enables the federal government to essentially bribe states into complying with onerous mandates that the federal government could not otherwise impose. And we've seen that time and time again. Again, conservatives have focused on the waste, the fraud and abuse of public sector uh, sector employees for decades and for good reason. But it's time to widen the focus to private sector companies as well, nonprofits and state and local governments who also enjoy government largesse. There needs to be more um, transparency regarding who's doing the federal government's work at what expense and to what end. And as of now, some of the murkiest parts of the D.C. swamp lie outside the federal bureaucracy's marble Uh, walls. And again, the the accountability is is far less as well. And while recruiting battalions of civil servants to do all the federal government's work in-house would be a bad and prohibitively expensive idea, the federal government should do a better job assessing when uh, it's fiscally and ethically defensible to have government functions carried out by private entities. 
Well, the last four decades have demonstrated that big government has to be confronted head on. Starving the beast doesn't work, just as cutting revenues led to runaway deficits rather than forcing the government to live within those um, uh, means, those uh, means that are established in Washington. Capping labor uh, gave birth to the blended federal workforce. The federal government has proven to be quite resourceful in terms of finding ways to meet the public's demands for expense programs and expensive programs and paternalistic uh, protections. Change is going to have to come from the bottom up, not the other way around. But how likely is that to uh, to be the case? Well, if history proves uh, any example, it's not very likely. Well, a recent study published in the Journal of Medical Ethics confirms that suppressing testosterone levels in male athletes does not eliminate their natural advantages over female athletes, a fact which contradicts congressional Democrats' claim that biological men should be allowed to compete in women's sports. Well, last May, the U.S. House passed the so-called Equity Act, which extends federal protections to include sexual orientation, gender identity, and would force girls in women's um, Sports to include biological males on female athletic teams. This will put women at a disadvantage and cost female athletes the titles, records and scholarships. They're rightfully theirs and can even lead to serious sports related injuries. Making that point while serving as an athlete can be troublesome as well. No Democrats in Congress voted against the Equality Act as they uh, and rather they have repeatedly downplayed the competitive advantage that biological males have when competing in female athletics. Representative Ilhan Omar called it a myth that men who identify as transgender women have a direct competitive advantage and considers it discriminatory behavior to not allow biological men to compete against women. Representative Katie Hill downplayed concerns about the bill's effect on female athletics and said this is fear mongering about trans women playing in sports. Uh, The uh, House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler said, and I quote, arguments about transgender athletes participating in sports in accordance with their gender identity, having competitive advantages have not been borne out, end quote. However, the authors, uh, two bioethics professors and a uh, physiologist professor of the paper Trans Women in Elite uh, Sport, Scientific and Ethical Considerations, concluded that male athletes who identify as transgender women have an intolerable advantage over their female competitors. The authors cited research showing that healthy young men did not lose significant muscle mass or power when their uh, circulating testosterone levels were reduced to below International Olympic Committee guidelines for 20 weeks. The recent International Olympic Committee guidelines allow biological men to compete in the women's division, among other things. Their testosterone is held below 10, and it's N-M-O-L-L. I'm not quite sure how to interpret that, but uh, at a particular level. However, this level is significantly higher than that of biological women. Well, the authors noted that indirect effects of testosterone will not be altered by hormone therapy. For example, hormone therapy will not alter bone structure, lung volume, or heart size to the trans woman athlete, essentially if she transitioned post-puberty. So natural advantages, including joint articulation, uh, stroke volume, and maximal oxygen uptake will be maintained. Male athletes have already easily acquired victories in girls and women's sports. And when we come back, I'll give you some examples. So this is science suggesting that what the politicians uh, say is uh, uninformed uh, and incorrect. Five o'clock news traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show 
Second hour. By the way, coming up in our next two segments, we'll talk with Dr. Julie Slattery. She is an author, a speaker, the president and co-founder of Authentic Intimacy. She's the host of Java with Julie. She's an author. And her latest book, I would highly recommend, Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design and Why It Matters. Uh, she comes from a great approach to the subject, recognizing the differing points of view within the body of Christ that have become very divisive. But how do we discern what God's point of view is and present it in a way that is consistent with the character Uh, the loving character of Christ. So she'll be joining us in our next segment. Just before the break, I was talking about a report that Liberty Council was writing about a recent study, I should say. It was published in the Journal of Medical Ethics, and it confirms that suppressing testosterone levels in male athletes does not eliminate their natural advantage over female athletes. Well, last May, you might recall the House passed a so-called Equality Act. It was... um, H.R. 5S788, it extended federal protections to include sexual orientation, gender identity, and would force girls in women's sports to include biological males on female athletic teams. Um, Representative Ilhan Omar, she called it a myth that uh, men who identify as transgender women have a direct competitive advantage. Representative Katie Hill downplayed the concerns, saying this fear-mongering about trans women uh, playing sports is just that, fear-mongering. And then you had uh, the House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler arguing about, uh, saying that arguing arguments about transgender athletes participating in sports in accordance with their gender identity, having competitive advantages, have not been borne out. However, the the co-authors of two... um, of this new survey, uh, two bioethics professors and a physiology professor, uh, they published the paper, Trans Women in Elite Sport, Scientific and Ethical Considerations, concluded that male athletes who identify as transgender women do have an intolerable, and this is their choice of word, intolerable advantage over their female competitors. The author cited research showing that healthy young males... Uh, did not lose significant muscle mass or power when their circulating testosterone levels were reduced to below International Olympic Committee guidelines for 20 weeks. Well, the recent International Olympic Committee guidelines allow biological males to compete in women's divisions when their testosterone level is held to a certain uh, level. However, this level is significantly higher than that of biological women. Well, the authors noted that indirect effects of testosterone will not be altered by hormone therapy. For example, hormone therapy will not alter bone structure, lung volume, heart size of the trans woman athlete, especially if she transitions post-puberty. So natural advantages, including joint articulation, stroke volume, um, maximum oxygen uptake will be maintained, uh, end quote. And again, this is from the uh, report. Male athletes have already easily acquired victories in girls' and women's sports, uh, Some examples are Mac Beggs, a 17-year-old, was born a girl and reportedly began identifying as a boy at the age of three, though Beggs underwent testosterone treatments for more than a year and had the muscle mass of a teenage boy. Beggs competed and took first place in the University Interscholactic uh, uh, League State Girls Championship on February 25, 2016. I'm not sure how this applies, but the the introduction of... uh, testosterone gave her, who became a him, the advantage when competing against girls. MMA fighter Fallon Fox, a biological male, gave his female opponent a conclusion, a concussion rather, and broke her eye socket in 2015. Uh, the woman, Tamika Brintz, suffered a damage to orbital bone and needed seven staples after she fought Fox. Gabriel Ludwig, 50, who was born Robert, joined the women's uh, basketball team at Mission College in Santa Clara, California in 2012. Ludwig is 6'6". 
uh, weighs 220 pounds. Cyclist Jillian Bearden, a 36-year-old biological male and Colorado Springs native, won the women's division of the EI um, uh, El Tour de uh, Tuscan in four hours and 26 minutes in November of 2016. And weightlifter Laurel Hubbard, a biological man, won the Australian International Women's Competition in March of uh, 2017. Hubbard, 39, lifted 591 pounds, nearly 20 pounds more than the woman who won the silver medal by lifting 572 Well, Liberty Council's uh, founder and chairman, Matt Staver, in response to all of this, said some politicians have lost all sense of reality when they push for biological men to compete in women's sports. The so-called Equality Act promoted by LGBT activists under the guise of equality for all people puts men at an unfair advantage over women athletes. As a result, female athletes who have trained hard to compete will lose titles, records and scholarships that are rightfully theirs and even incur serious sports related injuries. There is nothing fair or equal about that. Well, again, the survey uh, was published, if you're interested in reading it in its entirety, in the Journal of Medical Ethics and confirms that suppressing testosterone levels in male athletes does not eliminate their natural advantage over female athletes. Now, whether or not this will resonate with lawmakers who say they're looking uh, to level the playing field remains to be seen. Well, Democratic New York Governor Andrew Cuomo Seems incredibly concerned with animal cruelty, but when it comes to newborn babies, well, not so much. Tony Perkins points out that the New York state um, uh, governor uh, who celebrated abortion extremism has outlawed declawing cats because of the sheer cruelty of it. Well, the man behind the infamous light display for infanticide has apparently decided that it means... um, Uh, That it's mean, rather, to declaw cats. Dismembering tiny humans, on the other hand, gets a hearty standing ovation. Well, for American states, it's a first. When the far-left governor uh, inked his name on a law that makes it a crime to surgically remove a cat's claws, pro-lifers couldn't help but see the irony in the whole thing. Declawing is a cruel and painful procedure, that's absolutely true, that can create physical and behavioral problems for helpless animals. And today it stops, he said. By banning this archaic practice, we will ensure that animals are no longer subjected to these inhumane and unnecessary procedures, uh, the governor Cuomo said in a statement. It's funny, though, that he didn't seem to mind the inhumanity of leaving a perfectly healthy newborn abortion survivor to die or the cruel and painful procedure that literally rips a living child to pieces. Now, where was Cuomo's horror at the uh, kind of surgery that Dr. Anthony um, Livettino explains involves reaching into a woman's um, uterus with forceps and grabbing whatever is there? Uh, Maybe you dismember with a leg or I won't go into any more detail, but. They do point out that the skull is the most difficult sometimes. Um, Well, again, I'm not going to go into much more detail. You can imagine for yourselves how gruesome the procedure is, dismembering a a child in utero. Well, unlike kittens, babies don't survive that inhumanity, which is apparently just fine with this governor of the double standard. So while abortion uh, right up to the point of birth uh, and the uh, survivor of abortion Uh, does not uh, merit treatment in New York State, cats will no longer be declawed because it is just inhumane and a brutal procedure. Well, the deceased gunman who killed three and injured 15 at a Northern California food festival on Sunday night has been identified by authorities. According to multiple reports, a law enforcement official confirmed the name to the Associated Press today ahead of an update that the police officers are set to, uh, set to, uh, to, I should say, gave 
at one o'clock. Police said it took less than a minute for officers to respond after the gunfire erupted at the Garlic Festival at about 5.41 p.m. last night. We had many, many officers in the park at the time that this occurred, as we do any uh, day during a festival, which accounts for the very, very quick response time, the, the chief of police said of the event. Uh, He said the gunman gained access to the festival by cutting through a fence near a creek area. He said some witnesses reported a second suspect. Police couldn't immediately confirm those reports, and it was unclear if that person also had a weapon or may have been providing some support to the shooter. Uh, It was reported that a six-year-old boy uh, was among the victims, Stephen Romero. He had his whole life ahead of him, said the boy's father. He was only six. Ryan Wallace, a witness, told the channel that he watched the gunman, who was almost dressed like a police officer, raise the gun and start to spray rounds. He walked through the crowd. He said he... um, uh, he wanted to get stuff done. It was horrifying. It's sort of a nightmare that uh, you hope never happens uh, in your lifetime, but we lived through it, or at least some lived through it. Personal video posted on Twitter appeared to show large crowds evacuating the festival. Many witnesses said the shot sounded like fireworks and there was confusion. One witness said that he heard what he believed were 30 rounds. Some witnesses said the gunman was in army fatigues. Um, uh, One of the performers at the event said he saw the man wearing a green shirt and grayish handkerchief around his neck fired into the food area when uh, one of the would-be victims asked why he was doing this. He just announced that he was very angry. Um, uh, And again, three fatalities as a result, 15 injured in this shooting. The motive is, uh, is not clear. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Julie Slattery. Her book, Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design and Why It Matters. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. I'm looking forward to a conversation with my next guest. She is the author of Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design, and Why It Matters. I had the opportunity to hear Dr. Julie Slattery speak at the Restored Hope Network Conference in Minnesota just a couple of months ago, and I was so impressed by what she had to say, not just because she spoke on the subject of sexuality in a biblically astute way, but because she called Uh, the church to accountability in a way that is very rare these days. So I'm just delighted to have her with us. Again, the book is uh, titled God's Design and Why It Matters, Rethinking Sexuality, the the primary title. She's also the co-founder of Authentic Intimacy, which is a unique teaching ministry. They're devoted to teaching on God's design for intimacy and sexuality. And their vision is represented by the words sexual discipleship. We'll give her an opportunity to explain what that means because it's very rare um, these days. But to give you her full bio, Dr. Julie Slattery is a clinical psychologist, an author, a speaker, and the president and co-founder of Authentic Intimacy. From 2008 to 2012, Dr. Slattery served at Focus on the Family's uh, writing, teaching, and co-hosting the Focus on the Family daily radio broadcast. In 2012, she left Focus to start Authentic Intimacy, a ministry devoted to reclaiming God's design for intimacy. She's the author of 10 books, host of the weekly podcast Java with Julie, and a member of the Board of Trustees for Moody Bible Institute. She's a wife and a mom of three sons. Uh, They live in Akron, Ohio. She joins us today by phone to talk about her ministry and for me to recommend her book, Rethinking Sexuality. Dr. Julie Slattery, thank you so much for joining us today. 
So good to be on with you, Georgine. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to say I was uh, so impressed, and I know everyone else in the room was as well, because we all talked about it at some length following um, your plenary session at the Restored Hope Network conference. And I just wanted to make sure that listeners here at KPDQ are familiar with your ministry and what you're doing. So maybe we should start with um, talking about your transition from Focus on the Family to the ministry you co-founded, Authentic Intimacy, which was a ministry of, of faith, but maybe one that you are somewhat reluctant to engage in, in the context of uh, of the Christian church? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, if God lets us know out of the gate what we're in for, a lot of times we'd probably just say no. But he, uh, he he kind of measures out the steps for us so that we don't get intimidated. And absolutely, in 2012, when, when we started this ministry, I couldn't have foreseen the kinds of conversations that we're having today and the kind of pain that we're dealing with in the culture and in the Christian church. Um, but it was a pretty dramatic call that God gave me uh, just to step out in faith and begin teaching about biblical sexuality and what that looks like in everyday life and the kinds of situations that we encounter. Now, those of us who have been around for a while can remember a point at which the church was essentially in agreement on issues of sexuality. There has been in the last, um, well, 10 years, five years, uh, new conflicts within the body of Christ uh, with regard to equality, uh, same-sex attraction, transgender, cohabitation, and all of these um, issues. And one of the things that you talk about is that the church has historically um, been on the same page with regard to theology, but in terms of uh, the ethic of reflecting um, Christ's character, we haven't done quite so well. Yeah, you know, Georgine, I, I think not only as a church, but as a culture, we all had some agreement maybe 40 or 50 mm-hmm. years ago of the purpose of sexuality, and all that has shifted. But I think one of the failings of the church, even historically, is even if we weren't in agreement, even if we were in agreement, we didn't talk about sexuality. Uh, we talked about it if, at all in very stilted terms and just moralistic, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And we never really talked about why sexuality matters, uh, why it's essential to being human, and what God's heart is for us in uh, different kinds of trauma, brokenness, sin struggles. We kind of had a simplistic approach. And I think that historic simplistic approach or silence is what has kind of paved the way for so much confusion within the Christian church related to sexual issues. It has become, sexuality in general has become one of the most divisive topics in the church today. And some would argue, particularly those with that history, that um, talk about uh, sexuality in the culture has an outsized uh, place in our thinking and culture but help us put into perspective why this is important and why it has emerged as such a major issue, not only within the church, but certainly in the culture in general, uh, following the sexual revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you have to do a little bit of digging in terms of understanding why we're seeing such foundational shifts in our beliefs about sexuality. And a lot of it boils down to more foundational thinking and beliefs related to the purpose of life. And we have become largely, most people would agree that we're a pretty relativistic culture that believes that uh, we as human beings should have the ultimate freedom to define our own reality, to define right and wrong. Uh, there's not agreement at all on the idea that there's a creator that created us with a, a unique design and that although we have freedom to choose or reject God, that there's a moral right and wrong related to who God is. 
And because we've let go of that belief in terms of having a creator that has expressed a moral law, everything is fair game, including how we define the purpose of life and how we find happiness. And so sexuality has become really a central way that a lot of people understand who they are, express themselves, reach for intimacy, companionship, love, and it's become a far more emphasized aspect of humanity than I think it ever has been in recent history. You make the point in the foreword of your book, Rethinking Sexuality, that we've been sexually discipled by the world, and you coined the phrase sexual discipleship in the context of faith. Uh, explain what sexual discipleship is in, in our effort to understand God's design and why this matters. Yeah, so sexual discipleship is more of an aspect of integrating our worldview and our understanding of life with sexuality. And even for people that were raised in a religious setting, in a church of some sort, at most you probably learned a list of rules of what to believe about your sexuality. And as you try to apply that in today's daily life, you keep going back to that list of rules. What does God say is okay? What does God say is not okay? And I would say that's more an educational approach to sexuality. It's teaching people to memorize Um, you know, a list of principles. But discipleship is this deep integration with helping us understand the why. Uh, Why why does sexuality matter? Why do my choices matter? And the broader culture has done a really great job of integrating our understanding of sexuality with what it means to be human. Um, I, I believe they're wrong in how they've been teaching that and discipling us, but they've been very effective in discipling us into believing that sexuality is primarily about personal identity, personal expression, and that the only moral categories related to sexuality are not impinging on somebody else's autonomy. And, and so the church, because we've been silent, because we've been uh, really simplistic about how we've addressed sexual issues, we haven't taught people how to think critically and biblically related to sexual issues. And so the culture has a more compelling explanation of these issues than right now the Christian church does. Why do you think we've been so reluctant to speak on a subject that Scripture speaks uh, quite plainly about? Why have we been squeamish or reluctant historically? And do you see uh, hopeful signs that we are uh, responding to the need to to discuss these subjects from a biblical standpoint now than perhaps uh, we've done in the past? Yeah, I think we've been, we're squeamish partly because we, again, have this heritage of even believing that sexuality somehow is always tainted with shame. It's always secret. It's always somehow sinful. And we look back at some of our church fathers, we can see that they wrote things like that. Uh, You know, people like Martin Luther, St. Augustine, there were, uh, there were things in their writings that hinted at this idea that God is holy and sexuality is somehow always tainted by sin. And because of that, we've kind of separated the two topics. And uh, you know, I also think that in reality, nobody wants to talk about things they don't understand. And a lot of our Christian leaders struggle with their own questions, their own issues related to sexuality. And so they're fearful of opening up those topics when they don't feel like they have solid uh, feet uh, or ground under their feet. And uh, you said, are there hopeful signs? I, uh, there's discouraging signs and there's hopeful mm. signs. You know, the hopeful signs is that we can't ignore problems anymore. And I think uh, even the most hesitant churches are beginning to realize that we have to 
engage with people where they're feeling pain. We have to talk about the Me Too movement. We have to talk about sexual harassment. We have to talk about uh, gender and homosexuality. We have to talk about pornography. We can't ignore these things anymore. They've always existed, but we wanted to pretend that they don't exist within the body of Christ, and we can't do that anymore. So I think a willingness to engage those problems is a hopeful sign, but I think where there's discouragement is that I think even among Christian leaders, we don't know where to start those conversations, and we don't know how to have them grounded in biblical truth. Uh, So I think there's a great need for God to equip his people to be able to have these conversations with grace and love, not being divided, but pursuing truth together. We're talking with Dr. Julie Slattery. She is a clinical psychologist, author, speaker, and president and co-founder of Authentic Intimacy. And if you're looking for sound biblical resources that help us hold ourselves accountable to how we approach these subjects within the church and how we influence the culture, let me recommend her book, Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design, and Why It Matters. There are other resources as well at their website. And again, this is a great starting point if you're recognizing the need for the church to do a better job in this area. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Julie Slattery. She is a clinical psychologist and author, speaker, and the president and co-founder of Authentic Intimacy. Let me encourage you to make note of the ministry. It's a great resource uh, for developing a biblical worldview in these areas and to uh, to challenge ourselves to consider how we've uh, how we've handled these issues in the past. Now, in one of your blog posts, you write that God created us as rational creatures who long for the answers to our why questions, that God is a wise parent who often gives us a why. There's a reason why sexuality matters and why every sexual issue has spiritual significance. Now, talk a little bit about God's intention in creating our sexuality as a, a metaphor for his covenant love. Yeah, I think this is um, a treasure in Scripture that has just been skipped over. Um, we, I think we readily talk about how marriage uh, is in Scripture reflected as a metaphor of God's covenant love. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we see that all through the Scripture of marriage and the covenant between a man and a woman being representative of God's covenant relationship with His people. But I think we get a little squeamish to apply that to sexuality. And we see all through the pages of Scripture that God is referencing sexuality, sexual faithfulness and unfaithfulness, sexual longings and desires as something in our bodies, the physical way that we experience something that, that has echoes of an eternal truth, that we were made for an intimate, passionate, covenant, faithful relationship with God. And, uh, and we don't often think about the fact that even as a single person, your sexual drives and longings and desires actually have a spiritual purpose, that they represent something. Uh, they represent this concept that you were never meant to be alone. You were meant for more. You were meant for uh, union, to be known and to be loved and embraced. And uh, we have in, on earth the physical fulfillment of that within marriage But the physical fulfillment is just a temporal picture of what God's really created us for, which is uh, the ultimate reality of knowing God and being known by Him. As I mentioned, the title of your book is Rethinking Sexuality, and it it raises the question, why do we need to rethink sexuality? And it's important to put that in the context of your subheading, which is God's design and why it matters. Why do we need to rethink sexuality? Well, I think 
because we've just done a really terrible job over the past generations of explaining God's design and why it matters. Uh, we've, we've talked about sexuality when we have addressed it with very judgmental tones. We've talked about it in terms of uh, sexual sin and immorality, even apart from talking about it in terms of God's redeeming grace and forgiveness. And because we presented it so simplistically, uh, now that people are faced with some really profound questions and challenges related to their sexuality, I think even uh, strong Christians don't know how to answer questions. In recent news, uh, I think a lot of Christians are aware of what's happened with Josh Harris and yes. some of what he's calling the deconstruction of his faith, largely because of questions that he's had about what he's written about sexuality. And if we don't have a deep understanding of God's heart for sexuality, we'll begin questioning our faith in God in general. And so I think that this is critical to discipleship and evangelism in our day and age. And in the book, you offer examples of people who have struggled um, around this issue and the broader implications. One doesn't necessarily see that tied to uh, core values and faith, but so often that that is the case. Brokenness and confusion doesn't always take place in the context of uh, of uh, sexual violence. It can take place in the context of marriage. And unless these things are addressed, people are going to continue to um, sit under the discipleship, if you will, of the culture rather than what God's design and what his word has to say. Yeah, absolutely. If If the world has a more compelling answer to our questions, than the church does, then people are going to flock to the world. And uh, can I just tell you the, the answers the world is giving may sound like they make sense, but they're ending in pain and destruction. And the Bible does address these issues much more thoroughly and compassionately than we've been doing as the body of Christ. And so I, I really think it's time to be equipped to go deeper with these issues and questions that people are asking. Once again, we're talking with Dr. Julie Slattery. She's a clinical psychologist, author, speaker, and president and co-founder of Authentic Intimacy, where they proclaim God's word into areas of life that the church has often been silent or ignored altogether. She's also the author of an excellent book, Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design, and Why It Matters. In the uh, second part of your book, um, uh, the, the the first chapter in that segment, uh, it's titled, What You Think About Sex Begins With What You Believe About God. And we often don't make that connection unless we've had a personal experience where it's undermined our, our faith. But talk about that connection and why so often uh, that is the case and how critical it is for us as the body of Christ to understand and pursue God's word um, in the context of, of his, uh, his response and his uh, love for us and the world. Yeah, I believe that our sexual beliefs and choices both begin with and end with uh, spiritual beliefs and choices. And what I mean by that is, first of all, they begin with our worldview. And so if we look at just basic research uh, that is being done on what the average American believes about a variety of sexual behaviors, we see within the last 20 years a pretty dramatic shift in almost every category from, is it morally acceptable for two people to have sex before marriage? Is it morally acceptable for them to have a baby outside of marriage? Uh, is it morally acceptable for two people of the same gender to be married? On and on and on, these moral questions, what people believed was wrong 20 years ago, a lot of people are now saying, no, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And so we have to ask the question, what changed in 20 years? Uh, was there 
a scientific finding that changed our, our view. Uh, and there really hasn't been on any of these issues. There's been no research that has changed our thinking. The main thing that has changed is that we've we've altered what we believe about God. We've altered what we believe in general about his moral authority and, and his moral truth and what will find what will bring us happiness. And so our changing beliefs personally and as a culture related to every sexual issue started with our changing beliefs about God and who he is. And we see that even within the Christian church as we walk away from the authority of scripture we're going to have change our mind on a lot of different moral categories, including sexual categories. But I also believe that our, our sexual experiences impact how we view God. And this is something in psychology we call cognitive dissonance. Uh, a good example of this is a Christian who maybe was sexually abused as a child. And that, that Christian has to wrestle with the question, if God is a loving God and he's all-powerful, then why didn't he stop this pain? And uh, and I've seen so many people wrestle with questions like that. If God is a loving God, why would he create me with same-sex desire and then tell me I can't act out on those? And so our sexual pain and confusion make us revisit what we believe about the character of God. And so I, I believe when we're talking about sexual things, we need to press into the spiritual questions behind them and not not fall for the belief that we're just talking about whether something is right or wrong. Now, you, as I mentioned, are a clinical psychologist. You meet individuals in a professional capacity. Your book, Rethinking Sexuality, is written for those uh, who are experiencing sexual brokenness and confusion, but also those who love them and those who minister to them. What's the best way to prepare oneself to, first of all, understand God's design and why it matters, and then to minister to those who struggle and have questions that are sexual in nature, but at their core are spiritual questions? Yeah, I believe it begins with starting with the fact that we all are sexually broken. We're all wrestling through different issues. And I think in our current day, we tend to identify um, certain temptations or categories or choices that represent sexual brokenness. And I, I think it's far more pervasive than that. You know, an example, let's say you've got a Christian couple uh, that are married uh, and maybe they even save sex for marriage. They did it according to what the Bible says they should do. But sex in their marriage represents tons of conflict. Uh, they're always arguing about their needs being met. Oh, or sex within marriage is, is a lot of brokenness and pain emotionally or physically. That represents sexual brokenness. Um, or the single Christian who's staying pure but really doesn't know what to do with their sexual desires. And so I think we've got to talk more broadly about the fact that if we're honest, we're all wrestling with some of these issues related to why God created us as sexual people and what does healing look like. And once we're all on that same journey together, it becomes a lot more collaborative to begin seeking truth together instead of the posture of, hey, I've got the answers, you're broken, let me help you. Um, and so I think that's a fundamental shift that we need to make both within our churches, but also as we interact with people that we love and our families, uh, that we have the humility to say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling too, I'm broken too, I'm seeking truth too, let's do that together. Mm. Now, for listeners who are interested in learning more about your ministry, Authentic Intimacy, and I hope many will, what's the best way for them to, to learn more as well as to find your book, Rethinking Sexuality? Yeah, you can connect with everything we're doing at our website, which is AuthenticIntimacy.com. 
And again, I would encourage people to do that. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the uh, podcast is there. There are articles there. Just a great resource um, on this subject. And for those in particular who are in ministry, this is a great place to begin to think or perhaps rethink uh, the church's approach to the subject uh, with fidelity to the scripture, but uh, taking not only the theology into account, but the ethic of responding to uh, members of the church and the culture at large in a way that's also consistent with uh, with God's character. Thank you so much for talking with us. I, I've so appreciated um, learning more about you, listening to you speak and going to the website, reading and listening to things there. And I hope many of our listeners will avail themselves of this great resource as well. Thank you, Dr. Slattery. And thank you for being faithful to um, wade into an area that may, be, uh, may not have been your first choice, but in obedience, um, you're providing a tremendous service to the body of Christ. Thank you so much for that encouragement. I really appreciate it. I hope our paths cross again soon. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Again, uh, Dr. Julie Slattery, her book, Rethinking Sexuality, one of the best resources I've seen to date on the subject, God's Design and Why It Matters. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. In my conversation with Dr. Julie Slattery, she made reference to well-known Christian author, purity advocate who has renounced his faith, and she was referring to author Joshua Harris. And my heart just broke for a number of reasons. Um, It was announced over the weekend that uh, Joshua Harris um, announced the end of his marriage, as you may know, uh, is now kissing his faith goodbye, as well as the book that he was uh, made very popular having written, Uh, and the marriage that followed. Harris is the author of the bestseller, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, a book he authored in 1997. He later renounced that book after uh, shaping purity culture for many millennial believers. Uh, He revealed that he's stepping back from his faith. In an Instagram post, he also apologized for his previously held views, including bigotry, as he put it, to the LGBTQ community. The information, Harris wrote, Uh, That was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus Uh, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian. He added, I am not a Christian. And the former pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gatesboro, Maryland, recounted several things he has apologized for in the past. His self-righteousness, which all of us should be repentant of, his fear-based approach to life, the teaching of his books, his view of women in the church and his approach to parenting. Uh, to name a few, but there's one group he specifically wanted to add, and that was the LGBTQ plus community. He went on to write, I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I taught in my books. And as a pastor regarding sexuality, I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writings and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. He wrote, I hope you will forgive me. He received mixed reviews, support and some pushback for his uh, latest announcement. Now, aside from the fact that he's a popular author, that his marriage has dissolved, that he has been a pastor in the church, I'm concerned about the individual. Um, and I don't know about you, but my response, rather than simply being critical of, of him and what the course that his life has taken, as my guest, uh, Dr. Slattery, mentioned, this really began uh, around this, the subject of sexuality. I'm going to be praying for Joshua Harris as he walks out his life um, without faith as he's uh, defined his uh, his next course. So I hope that's the same approach that you will take um, as well. Taking a look at what's coming up uh, the remainder of this week, we're going to talk with Zach Elliott tomorrow. He's a former pastor from our community. His book is titled Now I See, An Invitation to Life to the Full. 
He'll be joining me in studio on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Casey Pipes will be my guest after the fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. We'll give him an opportunity to talk about what kind of comeback are we referring to. He certainly didn't have a political comeback. But we'll look at um, the influence that he uh, continues to have on the country. Casey Pipes, uh, my guest on Wednesday. Thursday, Vishal Mangalwadi will be my guest, the author of the book, This Book Changed Everything, The Bible's Amazing Impact on Our World. Uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, that conversation as we look at the impact the, uh, the Bible has had on culture, uh, not just here in the U.S., but all around the world. And then on Friday, we anticipate... Um, focusing on the lighter side of the news and hope you will join us for that. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with Dr. Julie Slattery, it was brief, but I think significant. I would also encourage you to go to the website to learn more about the ministry uh, that she co-founded, um, Authentic Intimacy, and that's simply the website. Go to AuthenticIntimacy.com or org, one or the other. She's the um, author of Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design and Why It Matters. And uh, you might assume from the title that she's uh, suggesting a deviation from what traditionally and historically the scriptures have taught. That certainly is not the case, uh, but rather how we approach these subjects within the church, being more honest and vocal about it because the need has uh, accelerated tremendously and the church is lagging behind. So Dr. Julie Slattery is someone I would certainly recommend as a resource in helping us to, uh, to catch up, if you will, in the 21st century in a way that is uh, honoring to God's word. So I want to uh, make mention of that. Well, James Blind is producer of today's program. Clark Hilton is engineer. I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day and remind you that tomorrow and the remainder of this week, we're going to be giving away family four packs of tickets to gospel sing live. That's coming up on the 16th of August at the Salem waterfront. We're going to have a great time. And of course that's the day before, um, the music festival for our sister station and uh, our, uh, I guess, festivals for, for both days of that weekend. So it's going to be a big weekend. You can find out more at kpdq.com if you haven't already purchased your tickets or you can listen up for an opportunity to win a family four pack of tickets each day of this week to Gospel Sing Live. All right. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We are out of time. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.